0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.
1: Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll be finding out why schemes to decrease emergency admissions are not as good as they would first appear.
2: As a GP I'm conscious that um, increasingly I get um, health authorities coming to me on my practice with, with figures saying how we're doing and, and sometimes putting interpretations on those figures that I think are, are sometimes misleading.
1: But before that, Mabel Chu is uncertain about the prognosis of children with a cough.
3: I've come to Oxford to have a chat to Matthew Thompson, who's a GP and senior clinical scientist at the University of Oxford. Matthew, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thank you. Matthew's here to talk to to us about what factors influence prognosis in children with acute cough and respiratory tract infection in primary care. Now, the problem, of course, is that cough is such a common presentation, particularly in children, and GPs often feel that they they want to balance the need to avoid over-prescribing with the need not to miss serious illness or the potential for serious complications. So, take us through the, the evidence for uncertainty here.
0: You're right Mabel, the issue with cough is that we see children all the time coming in with cough, and we're on the one hand trying to balance not prescribing inappropriately, but on the other hand, wanting to prescribe antibiotics for the kids who we think are really going to need them to avoid them getting pneumonia or end up in hospital. And I think it's that uncertainty that drives a lot of prescribing actually, because we just don't want to risk missing something bad and the child who deteriorates, comes back later, ends up in hospital. So in this article we look at uh, what we know about the evidence that GPs can use to help decide does this child coming in with a cough have a more serious respiratory infection or do they just have a mild infection that's going to go away? And I think that's probably a question that GPs think about quite often in primary care. Hmm.
3: So are there um, particular clinical pointers that we should be on the lookout for?
0: Yes there are. We've got some good evidence about some clinical features that GPs can use. These are things like child being short of breath or the doctor having a gut feeling that there's something wrong with the child. The trouble is these are better at ruling out pneumonia than ruling in. So if the child doesn't have shortness of breath or breathing rapidly and the GP does not have a gut feeling, you can be reasonably reassured that this child does not have pneumonia. Unfortunately, the opposite is not true. So if a child does have a bit of shortness of breath and you may have a bit of gut feeling, we're just less sure about how diagnostic those features are. And the trouble is, in primary care, there's only been one study, a study in Belgium of three or four thousand children, um, and that's really the only study that we can base this evidence on. We do have several studies from emergency departments where, again, they find you know, these red flag features of breathing difficulty, and in that setting, fever, or chest signs, in in other words crackles on the chest um, or the child having um, low oxygen levels. In the emergency Department these are good but we just don't know enough about those in primary care yet.
3: So um, is there any primary care evidence out there that can help us?
0: Well it's really just this one study of uh, three or four thousand children in Belgium. A well conducted study and they looked at all the presenting symptoms children coming in to see the GP with an acute infection had and use those to try and detect or predict which children ended up in hospital with pneumonia. And it was you know, the gut feeling of the doctor and the child being short of breath um, or breathing rapidly which were the most useful. But again, useful at ruling out. So in other words, if they're not there, you can be reassured. If they are there, well, it might be pneumonia or it might be other things causing th- th- those symptoms. So we still really don't have good evidence to help rule in Pneumonia in primary care, and that's what that's what we need to do more research on.
3: Okay, and you're involved in a trial on just that topic?
0: Yeah, exactly. The NIHR, the National Institute for Health Research here in the UK, is funding a large prospective study uh, where we're recruiting eight thousand children coming in to sit, see their GP with an acute cough recording all their clinical features, you know, their symptoms, their vital signs, their examination features, and we're going to use that in what will be the biggest ever study to come up with a prediction rule to help predict which of those kids end up in hospital or end up coming back to the doctor or going into the emergency department and being able to test that prediction rule to see how good it is in this real-world primary care setting. So that's going on now and the results of that should be coming out in the next year or so.
3: Okay so um, just to summarize what the GP can do with the child in front of him who's got an acute respiratory tract infection. If the sense of the clinician is that the gut feeling is that the child is probably okay that's a useful rule out tool if the child is not uh, struggling to breathe, if there's no sign of respiratory distress or the parents aren't describing their l- uh, breathing as laboured, um, that's another useful rule-out tool.
0: Correct. Those two are the most useful rule-out features. Mm-hmm. And if the child does not have the breathing difficulty and the GP, the doctor, is not concerned looking at the child's activity and behaviour, you can be pretty well reassured the child is very unlikely to have pneumonia. Okay. If those are present, you know, the child's having a bit of difficulty breathing, they've got a fever or there's some chest signs, I think it's a a signal to keep looking, examine a bit longer, spend a little bit more time with that child because they could have pneumonia. So maybe in some ways it helps the GP prioritise which of the many, many children we're seeing on a daily basis just to spend a little bit more time with and examine them and take a history in a bit more detail and make sure the parent understands safety netting and when to call back. I hope it gives the GPS some tools they can use to try and manage the the workload of kids with coughs in primary care.
3: Your article mentions some emergency department data, would you like to just briefly take us through that?
0: Yes, there's been a lot more research in emergency departments where they're able to do chest x-rays of course, so it's much easier to know with a gold standard, and know chest x-rays are reasonable gold standard whether or not at the end of the day the child did or did not have pneumonia. Of course the trouble in primary care is that we can't really do chest x-rays very often in most most settings. So in the emergency department there's been a lot more evidence. We found 12 studies in emergency departments. Although these are fairly small and much higher numbers of kids had pneumonia, And there's a few more features we know from the emergency department which are useful, so having a fever, having signs of breathing difficulty or labored breathing, having abnormal chest examination, and having low oxygen levels, for example with a pulse oximeter. These are useful in emergency departments, but again they're useful to rule out. So if none of those are there, you can rule out pneumonia, but if one or more of those are there, well, it could be pneumonia and, and, or it could be something else. Some of these are very nonspecific and you just have to look a bit more closely. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, well, thank you for that really useful um, update. And we look forward to your research findings for those of us working further upstream in general practice. Thank you, Matthew.
0: You're welcome.
1: And Matthew mentioned their gut feeling. And he and his colleagues have done some research into the clinical significance of that. And you can read that for free online on bmj.com. Now, Helen MacDonald, Assistant Editor at the BMJ, hears six common problems with schemes to stop emergency admissions.
4: We're now joined by Professor Martin Rowland to discuss his work on reducing emergency admissions. Um, We thought this was a great international and cross-specialty topic and a really good uh, subject in financially difficult times. Um, In the UK, this is really rather well-timed indeed um, for the formation of the new clinical commissioning groups. Martin, I wondered if you could start by just telling us a bit about yourself um, and what sort of angle you approach this topic from.
2: Um, Yes, well, I'm I'm a Professor of Health Services Research at Cambridge, but I'm also a GP and have been a GP for over 30 years. So I guess I, I come at this from from two angles. Um, first is that I've been interested in in referrals and admissions to hospital uh, as part of my research for many years mm. but also as a, as a GP I'm conscious that um, increasingly I get um, health authorities coming to me on my practice with with figures saying how we're doing and and sometimes putting interpretations on those figures that I think are, are sometimes misleading.
4: Yes. Um, so the remit of this article is quite interesting because the bulk of it is really challenging assumptions that we might have as doctors, doctors or policymakers about how to reduce admissions um, and it seems very simple as you've laid out in this article and you've gone through six commonly held misconceptions um, so perhaps if we just run through those and you expand a bit on those um, the first one you mentioned was the concept of frequent flyers
2: yeah. Well, these these are these are naughty patients. These are mm-hmm. people who are vilified because they keep getting admitted to hospital and if only you could do something about them you'd solve the problem of emergency admissions. Ah. And there's a flaw in this argument and the fact is that that most admissions don't actually come from frequent flyers. It's a little bit like some of, some of our readers may rem- remember Geoffrey Rose and the Rose hypothesis about hypertension, in which he pointed out that if you actually wanted to reduce deaths from stroke, then reducing the whole population's blood pressure by a small amount would do much more than tackling a few people with very high blood pressure. And so it is with, with the problem of the frequent flyers. And what we've shown in the article with with a, a simple table is that If you just concentrated on the people with the highest rate of admissions, actually you'd find it very, very difficult to do anything about the overall pattern of emergency admissions. So interventions need to be broader based.
4: Tell us about some of the numbers in that figure you mentioned, because they're actually really quite illuminating.
2: So, so for example, if you wanted to reduce admissions by 10% and were just concentrating on on the very high-risk patients, those who are at highest risk of being admitted, Actually, what, what the arithmetic shows is that you'd have to more than stop all of those patients going into hospital. So that, that demonstrates that, that we can't solve this problem just by focusing on those that were the, at the very highest risk.
4: So we really need to start thinking about other groups of patients to yeah, tackle. Indeed, yes. Right. Concept two then, um, regression to the mean. What, what does that mean?
2: Well, this is a a wonderful problem, and it's a wonderful problem for anybody who really wants to show that their intervention is working. Because what we showed, and and many other people have showed, is that if you take a group of people who are high users of, of health service and simply see what happens to them over the next few months or years lo and behold you find that, that actually their patterns of, of admission or utilization go down. So some while ago we looked for example at people who'd had two or more emergency admissions older people in in the previous year and if you then track them over the next three or four years their patterns of, of admission just go down to the same as everybody else of their age and, and this is a phenomenon that statisticians, statisticians are well used to describing called regression to the mean and so It's a really neat way of showing that your intervention works. You basically make sure you don't have any controls and you don't know what happens to anybody else. And you just take these high users, put in your intervention and show that their admissions go down. And lo and behold, they do, because they would have done anyway. So the message here is is actually a very simple one. It's either that you, you must have some sort of controls to look at if you're trying to show that what you're doing is working. That's often very difficult for people in the service. The alternative is that you actually have to look at the overall pattern of admissions. So if, for example, you're putting in community matrons to a group of over 75s, don't just look at the people who the community matrons are going to visit, but see whether your intervention is having an effect by seeing if, if it affects overall admissions for the over 75. Mm-hmm.
4: And what lies behind, clinically, what's lying behind that regression to the mean?
2: Did... I think what lies behind it is two things. Um... First of all, some people uh, were just having a bad year um, Mm. and, you know, a succession of things happened. Maybe they fractured hip and then had to go back into hospital with pneumonia or whatever. And they got over that constellation of episodes that took them into hospital. Uh, Of course, the other thing is that that some people had very low admission rates in subsequent years because they died.
4: Okay, All right. Concept number three, then. Um, Supply induced demand. Tell us about that.
2: Yes, well, we have this wonderful idea that if we put in additional services, they will miraculously reduce the use of health services. And again, um, we, we have economists to, to thank us for the phrase of supply-induced demand. Um, and uh, that's simply the issue: that when you put in additional services, additional people, they find more things to do. <laughs> um I mean in this particular field the um community matrons probably are another example in that we've got a paradox in that in a number of studies that that have shown or tried to show reductions in emergency admissions actually there seem to be more emergency admissions when you put in additional mm-hmm. services and that may simply be because you know these um the professionals are identifying more things that need treatment, and, and <clears throat> some patients from whom um, hospital admission would be beneficial. So you might That's be... easier to... Sorry.
4: I was going to say, so you might be improving the quality of service being delivered to um, a population, but you're not necessarily going to alter the end result or reduce costs. Yes.
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, perhaps another example which would be more familiar to to GPs in in the UK, anyway, um, is a 24-hour phone advice line which was set up across the NHS called NHS Direct. And this was trumpeted when it was introduced as something that was going to reduce demand on the health service, and um, so GPs would get less calls and hospital emergency departments would get less people visiting. And uh, none of that actually happened. And what we've got is is a service which is, I think, highly valued by patients. Mm. But it's an additional service, and overall, the use of healthcare has gone up from the introduction of NHS Direct. Now, that's not to say it's not a good thing, but it didn't um, achieve its aim in some people's eyes of saving money.
4: Yeah, yeah. So the next assumption is, and I, th- I thought this is quite an interesting one that we shouldn't assume that interventions or things that we design to help people are actually beneficial?
2: Yeah, well, this is a bit of a tricky one. Um, the example I've given in the, in the paper relates to self-management. And, of course, many people um, working in the NHS are trying to help patients with long-term conditions um, to um, self-manage their own conditions more effectively. And the the example I brought in was a a trial recently published in the United States of a um, a self-management intervention for people with COPD. And the trial was actually stopped early because of increased mortality in the intervention group. So more people in the self-management group died. Now... Of course, it's not impossible to think how that might have happened. If, if your intervention, you know, clearly steered people away from getting medical care when they should have been calling their doctor or, or going to hospital, then you could see how, you know, even something as apparently benign as, as improving self-management could actually be harmful. And I guess what this says to me is two things. First of all, that we need to be, just not make too many assumptions about what is automatically going to help patients, but also bear in mind that the context in which Um, care is provided or an intervention is provided may be critical. So using that example, you could very well see how a self-management intervention could be entirely beneficial, but equally situations where it could possibly be harmful.
4: Mm. So the fifth misconception comes back a bit to your introduction about being sent through data or information uh, about your practice or your individual referral or prescribing habits, that type of thing, and um, reminds us not to forget about chance and being very careful when we're interpreting small numbers.
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, and this is, this is again a, um, a recurring problem I, I find sometimes with health service managers. And if I go back to the example of um, our um, health authority who comes along to our practice and presents us with figures on our on our rates of referral um, every few months and they show us all the practices across um, Cambridge and say well look here you are in the distribution and, and here's the range of rates of referral and I say to them well how much variation would you expect and, and sometimes there's actually you know, very little variation and, and they look surprised by the answer as if uh, by the question as if the answer should be well you wouldn't expect any variation Mm -hmm. and the answer is that purely on statistical grounds even if all the gps were behaving in exactly the same way you would expect quite a bit of variation on the basis of chance alone and the problem becomes greater the smaller the numbers that you're dealing with Mm -hmm. so if you're dealing with specialty referral rates you know say to an individual specialty like dermatology over say, three months, a lot of the variation you get is simply going to be due to chance and nothing to do with the doctors at all. And you could waste a huge amount of energy chasing around to try and find out what you ought to do on the basis of a figure that was essentially spurious. Mm -hmm. So what we've done in this paper is to provide a table, giving people an idea of how much variation might be due to chance. And, you know, within that range, don't go to too much trouble to try and sort out what needs to be done to solve problem that might not be a problem
4: that's really helpful and i would urge readers to have a have a look at that table because it's the kind of thing which you can keep and use when when uh, the powers that be come and deliver these types of figures to your practice um so final point is um perhaps the worst of them all um do we actually know what we're doing (laughs) you seem to say that the research in this area is actually quite quite bad so how how do we go about deciding how to well, tackle it's, not the problem. Really
2: bad. it's not as illuminating as one would like it to be mm. um, so I've I've pointed uh, readers to various sources of, of evidence for the sorts of things that help um, but there isn't and I guess probably most people working in this service know this already there isn't an easy solution mm. so um, if you take for example the um, where we started off with avoiding admissions the best studies, and there are now quite a lot of them, are providing um, um, admissions for patients with congestive heart failure. And there's quite a number of studies showing that various forms of monitoring, regular weighing, et cetera, will help those those people. Then you need to be careful to not to extrapolate that to everybody else, to say patients with diabetes and expect you'll get the same result. So I think that... Um, what, what people can do, and they, they really do need help from um, public health departments who are going to need to, particularly with CCGs being informed, give people as much, uh, you know, concise but accurate information as possible on what sort of things are likely to help and what aren't. And and the real difficulty is where I think everybody agrees about these types of interventions, whether it's self-management or community matrons, um, is that the context in which you introduce whatever it is you're trying to do and the way in which you introduce it is probably really important to the result you're going to get. So it's not just like taking a pill. And, of course, everybody's context is is individual, and we've already talked about situations where you could introduce something that could be beneficial done in some ways and even potentially harmful done in others. So careful thought about both what the evidence is but then how you actually interpret that in your own local context is, I think, really important.
1: And that analysis paper is now available online on bmj.com. That's all for this week. Join us next week when we'll be back with more from the world of medicine.
0: For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.